Today, we will be studying Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 together. Please turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. About 20% of women who are having their first baby um, end up needing a C-section for one reason or another. And after they've had a C-section, they have two options for the delivery, in most cases, on their next baby. They can either have an elective repeat C-section, where they come in and have a scheduled C-section, or they can have something called a TOLAC. That stands for Trial of Labor After Cesarean. And when she comes in for her first couple of prenatal visits, we discuss at length the risks and the benefits of either option that she can choose. At the core of the discussion is that if she chooses to have a natural labor, she has something that's a one in a thousand risk of something called a uterine rupture, where the the uterus tears during her labor along the old C-section scar. And that could result in about a one in a thousand risk of a catastrophic outcome for the newborn. It's interesting for me to see how different patients process the exact same information presented by the exact same provider, presented in the exact same way every time, but they come to a completely opposite decision about what is best for them. Some women, they hear one in a thousand risk and they're essentially crippled by fear. They're like, oh my goodness, one in a thousand, who would ever do that? And another woman says, one in a thousand, what's the big deal? Why are we making such a big deal about something that's so small of a risk? The exact same data presented in the exact same way to a woman with the same intelligence or education as the next woman decides something completely opposite and has a different outcome in her decision with the information given. Now, we're all like that. We can all look at data. We look at shark bite data. Some of you look at shark bite data and say, what's the big deal? Only a couple people get bitten every year in the ocean. Other people are crippled in fear by anything that's salt water. We all act that way differently. Some of us, all of us really know the data on texting and driving, right? We all know that it's dangerous, and some of us don't text and drive ever. And then there are other people who drive down 410 and seem completely comfortable with the risk that they are putting themselves and others into. They look at the data and they come to a different conclusion. Here in our study of Ephesians chapter 4, we encounter a very similar, varied response to information. Paul has made a beautiful and compelling case for the gospel in the first three chapters. Ephesians chapter 1, we find the gospel is beautifully spelled out. In verses 7 and 8 of chapter 1, he says, In him we have redemption through his blood, for the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the wishes of his grace, which is lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will, according to his purpose set forth in Christ. Going on to verse 11, he says, In him we have an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
chapter 2 provides us with a foundational and eloquent understanding of the role that God played in the salvation. Verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then, down to verse 4, it says, But God, rich in mercy, being of great love for which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Going down to verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the division wall between hostility and abolished the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinance, so making peace. Chapter 3 goes on to express how the gift of the gospel is general. It's both to the Jews and to the previously excluded Gentiles. Verse 11 says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So this fast-forward overview of the meat of all of this rich theology brings us to chapter 4 through 6, where we learn how we should live these truths out. Basically, in light of these facts presented in these chapters, what should the people of God look like? How should we act? How should we interact with one another? We've been all given the same data, just like the example I used about the C-sections. In this case, we've been given, uh, we've been told how it works out in our lives, as he says it, but we act in very different ways with that data that we've been given, Christian to Christian, person to person, church to church. In one end of the spectrum, people look at the first couple of chapters of Ephesians and they selectively gloss over the parts that make them uncomfortable or they preferentially choose, I don't really like the way that, what that says. And so they gloss over that. But they love the second part of Ephesians about people loving each other and living in peace together. That part is great. I just don't want to trust that first couple of chapters. At the under, other end of the spectrum, we have people who love the passages of Ephesians 1 through 3. By grace we've been saved. We were dead in our transgressions. But they love it so much that it finds division, right? That they start to lord over people and say, well, this is the right way to believe. And it causes division in the church. Gabrielle and I attended a church a few years early in our marriage where the application of every sermon seemed to be Ephesians 2. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, somehow ended up that for him to be your shepherd, you were dead in your transgressions and he had to save you. If you got to John 3, 16, the, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, somehow ended back into Ephesians chapter 2 that before he could love us, we had to understand that we were dead in our sins. That church truly struggled to love each other. That church truly struggled to be a light to the world. Our study today takes us to the importance of application. When I counsel someone about a C-section, after giving her all the data, I essentially turn to her and I say, given this information, what would you like to do? What is your choice? Paul is was way more prescriptive in what to do. He says, I have given you the data, now let me tell you what you should do. Let me tell you what this should look like in your life. That brings us to our text. Let's turn Ephesians chapter 4, and we will study verses 1 through 6 together. Read with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is, over, who is over all, through all, and in all. Here we see a strong urging from Paul to walk in a manner worthy or to walk worthy of the calling. First, we notice the position from which Paul makes his plea or urging. In my work, we recently started to talk through a policy-changing algorithm where any policy that we want to change, we discuss systematically the benefits of making the change in the policy, the downsides of making the change in the policy, who are the key players which the policy should affect, and therefore we should involve them in the decision. And after we have decided to move forward with the policy change, we get to the question of what is the most effective way to disseminate the message, and who should the voice of the disseminator be? Is the voice best the chair of the department? Is it a division head? Is it a leader of a certain program? Is it the champion for the idea? Who would best communicate this effectively such that it has the intended result? Here, we'd see that sometimes if we, if we hear it from a legitimate source, we're inclined to be like, yeah, I trust, I trust that decision. Whereas if we hear it from a, from a source that's less legitimate, then we're more willing to disregard it. Here, Paul is announcing his credibility. The basis of his credibility claim, however, is a bit counterintuitive. He comes to you as a prisoner of the Lord. Prisoners don't have much credibility on the surface of things, so why is he saying that? This is language that Paul uses several times throughout the New Testament. Paul's claim to being a prisoner of the Lord has a dual effect in his credibility claim. First, he establishes himself as one under the authority of the Lord. He is someone who has been saved from death, just like he talked about Ephesians 2. He is someone who is wholly under the submission of the Lord, just like a prisoner would be. He further supports his credibility by making the plea by stating that he had become an actual prisoner because of his love for the gospel. At the time of the writing here, he is a literal prisoner. He's in Rome. He is suffering persecution because of what he's doing and preaching the gospel. He's not coming to you from an ivory tower of, of theologic thought and saying, guys, this is how you should live this out. You should be willing to suffer through all this together. But he, in the end, is really not suffering that much. This is not like a king sitting at some castle completely protected from all the danger around him, and he's saying, guys, fight well. No, he's coming to you as a general who's actually put himself first in the battle line and suffered scars and been hurt. His legitimacy is established by saying, I am a prisoner. I have lived this. Now I want you guys and I urge you to live this yourself. So with this foundation of authority, he urges the Ephesians and by extension all Christians to walk worthy of the call to which you have been called. Now, the word call here can have multiple meanings, and he uses it twice, and, and the two meanings are separate and intended to communicate different things. The Ephesians, on the first call, he says, the Ephesians, you have a call or a duty, a job, a responsibility. That is your call or your calling to act like someone who you are. 
So this is like a father or a mother saying, in our family, our calling is to act this way. This is how we act in our family. Or a CEO of a company saying, this is how we act in our company. This is how we treat customers. This is how an employee of this company acts. Or, like someone who's part of a royal family would say, this is how royals act. They dress this way, they act this way, they don't act in this way. This is what you're called to act in this way. The Philippians have a job or a calling to act in a certain way, and he's going to tell us what it looks like. And then he says, the second time he words to use the word call as a reference to how they got into the royal family, how they got into the company. And this he's saying that they have a job that you have been called to. And thus he makes it clear that they didn't get into this church, he didn't get into this royal family by their own volition. They were called. And this takes us back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, where he said, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." We have gotten this position, we have gotten this calling, not because we are awesome, but because God called us and got us here. And now he's saying, now act like it. I got you here, now this is how you need to act. So then Paul goes on to list four characteristics of someone who is walking worthy. Verse 2 says, With all humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. The first characteristic that we see is inwardly focused, but it's also the most important, humility. Repeatedly in the Bible, we see pride condemned and humility praised. I think in society, especially in the church, but all of society, humility is seen in the virtue, as a virtue. In general society, they want to admire people who are successful but are then still able to defer praise, to kind of give credit to others. We want to see humility in our leaders. We want people to have impressive achievements but still be able to give credit to elsewhere and not really be stuck up with pride. And I think there's very rare exceptions to that. But in general, in society, humility of successful people is admired. And I think it's even more that way in the church because we are told to walk like Christ. And Christ is the ultimate personification of humility. The person who was, the God who was living in heaven became a person and humbled himself to live on this earth. And so we're told in the church, you guys should be humble, you should be like Christ. And so we are prone to want to be that way, which leads to some true humility and unfortunately also true leads to maybe some false humility in us. I think it's easy to see false humility in others. I think we have a great radar for that. I can see when you guys are falsely humble. I think it's a little harder to see in ourselves. I think there are signs of false humility in the church, and I think it is a problem that that we often have and we struggle with. Here's some signs maybe for you to consider of false humility. You confess small sins, but you let the big ones, the ones that are kind of prevalent in your heart sort of just fester, but you want people to know you're busy confessing sins. Do you sacrifice publicly just to be seen by others? Do you believe that living by humble means actually makes you humble? That if maybe you're not flaunting your wealth, that you're actually a humble person just because you're not flaunting it? Do you see yourself as a person who brings clarity or justice to a situation? And when you tell the stories about it, are you the hero of the story? 
Do you love debate rather than dialogue? In so you think in your heart, oh, I'm just humbly defending the word of God, but really you just love your own words. Do you self-deprecate in order to open up the door for others to praise you? Are you easily offended? Do you think so much of yourself and then you go and you say, I'm just sticking up for the people who have no, have no voice, but really in the end, you're the one that's most offended and you really are just kind of sticking up for your own strong view of something? There's so many examples of ways that we can have pride, but really we're trying to, to put it off as humility. A correct view of self and your state are required for you to properly function in the church because we're drawn to often building ourselves up in the church. We are tempted to speak spiritual lingo to impress others. We're tempted to talk about how about a passage, how it humbled us, and we are just convicted by it. But those words don't result in really much action that actually changes and puts other, and basically a humble act that puts others first before yourself. And in the church, we can often be proud of things that are good things, but we start to get puffed up by pride. We could be proud of our programs. We have all these great programs. Or we could be a church without programs and be proud that we don't mess with programs. We stick to the gospel. We just stick to the word of God. We could be proud of our facility. God's blessed us. We have this great facility. Or we could be proud that we don't have a facility. Those other churches, they waste their money on, on facilities. Man, we, we have the gospel in mind. We're so simple. We, just, we don't need a facility. We could be proud of our amazing worship team how amazing all these gifted musicians are. Or we can be proud of our simple music, that we just let the words speak for themselves. We don't need a fancy guitar and drum sets. We can be proud of either one. We can be proud of our preacher and how witty he is and how clever and, 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 and all the great illustrations that he uses. Or we can say, you know, we don't need clever illustrations because we, we love the theology. We don't need all that fluff, right? We can be proud on either side of good things. The point is, we struggle with humility even in good things in the church. So if you struggle with humility, you will struggle living out Ephesians chapter 2. You'll, you'll struggle with the theology, but more, you'll struggle with the practical side of loving each other because you think so highly of yourself. And I think there's so many practical ways that you can do to identify uh, and, and, and address humility in your life. I have two things I just want you to consider. First, do you practice regular and genuine confession of sins? I'm not talking about just, Lord, forgive me for how I've wronged others. I'm talking about looking and examining your life and finding things where you are sinning and you're struggling with sin and going to God and begging for forgiveness. And in that begging, he shows you your shortcomings. He shows you that you don't have much to be proud of. And in that is how he shows you your pride. And that's how he shows you your great need for him. He shows you you're, you're not just God's great gift for the church. You're not the one that this church needs. You're not the, the one that has it all right because you start seeing your own sin because you're truly confessing sin. Second, stop comparing yourself to others and start comparing yourself to Christ. We can all find someone out there who is worse off than us, who is struggling in sin more, who is meaner, who is ruder, who is more closed-minded than us. If we do that, we will selectively choose the person that makes us look not that bad. But if we hold ourselves up to the mirror of Jesus, then we look and we see the huge chasm that is there 
we see how, fall we, how, how we fall so short of really perfection. So stop holding yourself and being like, I'm not really that bad, I'm doing pretty good. Because when you look at Christ, you're going to see a huge chasm. And that chasm can be overwhelming until you actually realize that Christ bridges that chasm with his death on the cross and your salvation that he offers you. So the first characteristic of walking worthy is humility. Humility. The second characteristic of someone who's walking worthy is gentleness. Gentleness is also referred to as meekness in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus said, blessed are the gentle or blessed are the meek. Gentleness is listed in Galatians 5 as one of the fruits of the spirit. Gentleness is not timidity. It is not weakness. It is not cowardice. Those are not synonyms to gentleness and weakness. One definition of meekness or gentleness is power under control. Or so biblical meekness and gentleness would be power under the control of God. We see the ultimate example of meekness in Jesus right before the crucifixion. He's in the garden and he could have appealed at that point when he's being arrested to the father. And the father could have sent down a legion of angels and pretty much saved him. He had the power, but he was gentle and he was meek because he knew he had a greater mission to accomplish and that he had to be sacrificed. So in that moment, he was power under control. He was meek. He was gentle. It's natural for him to follow here with the idea of gentleness after first addressing humility. I remember early in my surgical career, I sat on a panel that was set up by an insurance company to protest by a surgeon who had been taken off their approved surgeon's list because he'd had a couple of complications. And I do remember sitting in that room and not being particularly gentle in my spirit, not being particularly really meek. And I think as I look back on that 15 years later, now that I've been operating for 15 years, there's a saying in surgery that says the only way not to get surgical complications is to never operate. So back then, maybe I hadn't had my complications. And now 15 years later, now that I have one or two under my belt, maybe I'm more inclined to be humble. Maybe I'm a little more inclined to have been gentle. I think I would have been a better representative at that time. The details of the case aren't important. The point is, I do see, I do wonder if I would have sat in that room a little bit different now that I've been humbled a few times surgically, now that I've struggled and had a complication. Our, our humility will lead to gentleness and our pride will lead to harshness. Does that make sense? A true understanding of the gospel and the works of God that are described in Ephesians 1 through 3 results in gentleness, not in lording over people by our intellectual superiority. We're not just surrounded by theological idiots who just haven't figured out like you figured it out. People who truly understand the grace described in verses 1 through 3 aren't lording over people. They're being gentle. And don't get me wrong, I'm not advocating for people to, to be this toddler-level understanding of the Bible. I'm encouraging people to grow, and that's what the Bible calls us to do. But the point is, that should result in gracious living. It should result in gentle living. The third element of walking worthy is with patience. With patience. A correct view of the gospel results in patience towards others in the church. 
the ultimate example to us of patience is God the Father and then Jesus Christ when he came to earth. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see the Israelites and specific people continually messing up, giving them him plenty of opportunity for God to get angry and just zap them and get frustrated. But over and over again, he's patient. He's patient with their sin, with their shortcomings, with their regression, with their rebellion, with their forgetfulness, with their complaining. Over and over again, the perfect God is patient when he just should have zapped them, right? He had it right. They had it wrong. But he is the example of patience. And then Jesus came to earth, and then he surrounded himself by some really, really simple dudes. I mean, these guys were really simplistic. They were uneducated. And they acted like simple, uneducated people. They basically focused on all the wrong thing, missed all the points of his parables. They sat there and they argued about silly things about who would be first in the kingdom. But he was patient and he lived with them and taught them over and over again for three years. Romans chapter 15 verses 5 and 6 says, May the Lord of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord. The source of our patience is God, and he has granted it to us. Why? So that we might be like-minded. The main point of the uh, passage that Paul Ripley read earlier in in chapter 14 continues here in, in chapter 15. We are not called to all believe the same thing about peripheral things in the church. Here the teaching is not for everyone to get on board and have the same idea of what translation of the Bible we should use and everyone get on board with how we should school our children and everyone get on board with what the style of music should be in the church and everyone have complete agreement of one type of music that should be allowed to listen to at home for your teenager, what type of movies we should watch or how we as Christians in the church should interact with politics. All of those things are peripheral issues and he's saying that a true understanding of the grace of God results in us not being caught up on those things such that we are not like-minded. He's calling us not to think the same things about peripheral issues. He's calling us to have a spirit of like-mindedness, to be seeking peace. Which brings us to our fourth point, which is bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I like how he puts it in this passage because it doesn't sugarcoat the problem that we often encounter in the church. I think that some elements of church would just be easier if we didn't have to hang out together. If we could just show up at 10.15 and then slip out the door at about 11.30 or 11.45 if I go long, then things would be a lot easier. Or maybe even better, maybe I should just do church online or do podcasts. Then I really wouldn't have to do community groups I wouldn't have dinner with you guys and where we get an awkward conversation about like things we disagree on. We wouldn't have to confront sin because nobody would be around seeing our sin. That sounds, that sounds kind of like a good idea. And this passage states that we are exactly having what we have to do, which is bear with one another. 
This isn't talking about bearing each other's burdens. That's addressed and encouraged in other parts of the scripture. This is truly bearing with you guys. This is truly bearing with me. The truth is, sometimes I'm hard to hang out with. The truth is, sometimes you're not that great to hang out with. Sometimes we in our sin, we hurt each other. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 states the same idea. Above all things, be fervent in love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. The presumption is that we're going to sin against each other as we live together at church. And it's actually not saying here and there. He's saying you are going to need love to cover a multitude of sins, not just a few. So if the church is messy and the church is full of potentially people who will hurt us, why don't we just celebrate church alone? Why don't we just do it as an individual family? After all, there is that verse that says, wherever two or three are gathered, I will be there. We can just have church at home. The first reason is quite simply, we're commanded not to do so. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 says, do not neglect the meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another And in all the more, you see the day drawing near. So here in Hebrews, he provides the caution. He says, don't do it. But within it, he's providing the reason that we shouldn't give it up. He's providing the positive reason for continuing to be in the fellowship and community of the church. It says that you may encourage one another. When we abandon the church, either completely or functionally, by slipping in and slipping out and not participating in any um, parts of the other lives of the church, we miss the joy of encouraging one another. We miss the joy of being encouraged by one another. In 2001, um, Barbara Eichreich, she published a book called Nickeled and Dimed and Not Getting By in America. She was a journalist, and she committed to live a life a year working a minimum wage job, and she chronicled the difficulty of the working poor. She essentially wanted to show that someone could not really live on minimum wage and much less support a family on that minimum wage. The church highlights some very important issues that I think are important to consider as a church, such as what is a livable wage? What should we as bosses be paying our employees? Being aware of abuse of poor in the workplace. Those are important issues to consider. But one of the criticisms I had when I read the book was that the ground rules for her social project was to decline help from family, friends, or philanthropic organizations. She wanted to prove that it is not possible to do it on your own. And then I would say, yes, Barbara, I agree with you. It is not possible to do this on your own. We are not intended to be alone. We are intended to be in community. We are intended to be there for each other. Just like Hebrews in this passage and so many other passages state, we are to live within the confines, the protection and encouragement of the church, even when it's hard even when we have to bear with one another. So here we are. A correct understanding results in us being humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, and that is the manner worthy with which we are called. And 
That's what we're supposed to be eagerly seeking out to do, enthusiastically going out of our way to achieve the things to help us figure out how to prefer each other. So let's close by looking at the final three verses. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Now this may surprise some of you guys who don't know me well, but I graduated from Texas A&M. I was what some Aggies would call a two-percenter. A two-percenter is someone who doesn't fully embrace all of the traditions of Aggieland. It is someone who just doesn't go all in as an Aggie. I have never built a bonfire, even though it was there all four years it was built. I have never bought a hat or a shirt that says Aggies on it. My kids bought me one once, just, just because I never have had one for 15, well, 20 years now since I've graduated. Believe it or not, it's not that I just don't wear my Aggie ring. I don't own an Aggie ring, and I never have. I loved my college for the education I got and the friends I made, but in the end, I really never became a gung-ho Aggie culture person and traditions. You know, I think it's because I'm the child of two hippies from San Francisco um, who value some degree of non-conformity. And, and so to look across A&M and see where conformity was valued so much, it just kind of was distasteful to me. And not conformity wasn't exactly valued where I was at A&M. But a few years after I graduated, I experienced something that changed my perception about the power of conformity. 9-11 happened. In the weeks that followed, many of us remember the uh, hurting of the nation as we, um, as we tried to figure out how to support people who had lost. And everyone did it different ways, and it was just impressive to remember back on that time on how people rallied around each other. And the at A&M, the Aggies did in a very unique A&M way. I was graduated, but I remember looking in the Dallas Morning News, in the first football game after the tragedy, the, the student body honored those affected by orchestrating a red, white, and blue color pattern at the game. The stadium has three equally sized decks, and they told everyone, if you are on the top deck, you will wear red. And in the middle deck, you will wear white. And in the bottom deck, you will wear blue. And I encourage you to Google the picture sometime. It is impressive. When you look across the vast sea of about 30 to 40,000 students on their side, and you look at the top deck, there is not one single person in the top deck not wearing red. There is not one single person in the second deck not wearing white. And in the bottom, it is entirely blue. And I remember looking at the picture and thinking, only at Texas A&M, where conformity is valued. At that moment, the students who were walking in that day had to decide, do I set aside my preference for this game? The shirt I otherwise would have worn. As you guys know, football, very popular in the South. You dress up for the football games, you put on your sundress, Someone put on a red, ugly, scratchy, cheap t-shirt over their beautiful sundress. They set aside for a greater vision their preference. 
If that can be achieved by a unity of a student body, how much more should that not be achieved as a church who's unified through the saving work of Jesus on the cross? How much more shouldn't this be evident in those who are not just motivated by the spirit of Aggieland, but those who are motivated and drawn by the Holy Spirit living inside of you, having changed your heart? As our statement of faith says, the Holy Spirit, he lives in the lives of his people today, revealing truth, giving spiritual gifts, empowering godly lives. We are unified together. We are able to prefer each other and defer to each other on non-essential issues because we are under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. A correct understanding of Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 results in people tripping over themselves to have a common good. And that's the glory of God in his body and the building up of other Christians. So I want to close with just a few applications for us as a church. The first is to go back to verse 1 in uh, chapter 4, where Paul says that he urges or exhorts them to walk in a manner worthy. Elders are called to do many things in shepherding and leading the church, and part of that is urging. When you are urged from the pulpit... When you are urged in small groups to do something, when you are urged in a personal conversation, that is how God called the church to function. It's sometimes hurtful to hear those urgings. It's sometimes a little embarrassing when people confront us about ways that we are sinning, the ways that we are not contributing to the unity of the church. But what Paul is doing here, and over all his writings, he's confronting Church-wide sin, he's confronting personal sins, and he has confidence that they will change. And he has confidence because he knows we are under the control of the Holy Spirit, who's in the business of changing hearts. When you're frustrated with that person who really just keeps on seeming like they're screwing up, just remember, the Holy Spirit, if they're a believer, is in their hearts, and he's working. So don't disregard the ability of the Holy Spirit to change them, even though you on the outside really struggle with seeing change. I think the Holy Spirit's got this. Next application is to consider how you can be an instrument to actively seek peace in the church. You know, the natural history that I've observed as Christians become older is one of two dichotomous paths. On the one hand, I see sometimes older Christians as we get old, and my definition of old is anyone older than me. And that will continue until I get really, really old. And so currently, that's anyone 40 and above. And so what I see in people who have been in the church for a long time sometimes is is that they get kind of close-minded, kind of grumpy, kind of judgmental. And they basically are perceived as grumpy old Christians. They're more and more rigid. On the flip side, and more Christians than that, what I see is I have the joy of observing them become more mature Christians in which they grow more and more gracious, more and more nuanced, more and more understanding of people when they're struggling, the root of their struggles. They know the theology, but the theology doesn't make them more judgmental. It makes them more gracious. 
I'm not talking about wishy-washy theology where we say we have open hearts and open minds and anyone is welcome no matter what you believe um, to be, to, to be uh, someone saved in the church. I'm talking about people truly understanding the grace that has been bestowed on them and they are able to be gentle and gracious to those in the church. I've had the privilege of observing not many people in my life. Um, you know, my parents are here today. They're visiting. Hey, Mom. Hey, Dad. Uh, they, uh, um, I, I've seen in them, just in the last 30 years, of someone who, some of the things they really believed, I've seen in them as they've grown old, kind of just giving up those things is not that important. Things that they thought were so foundational, really giving up and realizing that it's really about helping people who are trying to grow and trying to struggle. And they've given up some of the things that were kind of peripheral before. And, and, and often the essential things that we think young in our lives, it, God has to grow us to realize that those aren't essential. So it's not like we can rush into that necessarily, but I've seen that in them. I see that in Marshall and Doug, who aren't here today. Um, there are two senior elders um, and two people who just many years of experience. And what their wisdom does as I sit, sit there is I know certain strong things that they believe. And then I'm often shocked at how nuanced they are with their strength of their conviction that they're like, yeah, that's what I believe. But you know what? In order to have peace in the church, that's just not that important. So I see that in them. They set aside their personal preference for the peace of the church. Or, as someone who usually stands up here and leads music and doesn't preach, I admire the few older families who I absolutely know would prefer to only sing hymns. You guys know who you are. I won't, I won't bring you up by name, but I, I know that that's what you guys prefer. And it is such a blessing to me to see you guys really trying to learn those choruses that the kids love, right? Today we sang three choruses that are essentially from a kid's hymn book. And being like, I want to learn that because I want to be part of the corporate body praising, even though that's not my preference. That's encouraging to me. It's one of the reasons I hope you clearly hear the elders when we pray that we pray for churches in San Antonio. We pray for specific churches in San Antonio. Faith Presbyterian, just, I guess, north of here. Redeemer Presbyterian, downtown. Believers Fellowship, northeast side of town. Mission Church, like three miles south of here. I'm sorry, three miles north of here. Grace Baptist, three miles south of here. The Crossing Community Church. These are churches that in many ways have some different beliefs than we do. And both in practice and in theology, they are somewhat different than us. But at the core, they believe the gospel like we believe the gospel. And what we want to communicate is that those are partners in the gospel. They are on the same team, and we are partners. And so we're not so caught up on the theology. While we believe our theology to be true, there's other great churches doing good work in San Antonio, and we thank God for that. You know, these are only a few examples. Um, but I do want to point out that the biblical progression of the understanding of the gospel is to grow in grace. As those of you who are in the room who are young, which once again is anyone 40 and under, that's the definition of young, um, is, that you, is that you grow in grace. Is that you look like people who are more concerned about bringing peace as it relates to peripheral issues. 
So I, I encourage you to look towards these people, not as perfect individuals. These people are all people who sin and are not perfect, but as people who are models for people who are growing in grace, who are growing in love and maintaining peace in a church. Finally, if you are here and you don't know anything about the hope that changes lives because you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, if you don't know about this whole belief about a saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, if you're confused but kind of intrigued by the concept of a community of people who seek to live in peace not because we have the same political views or the same social views or the same hobbies, then I encourage you to ask who are you following? Are you really just following what culture says for you to follow? Or ultimately, are you just following what you want to follow? I encourage you to follow Jesus. And if that is you, I encourage you to come. Talk to me. Talk to Daniel. Um, talk, to, talk to so many people in this, in this room who want you to know that community that we enjoy, not because we have the same hobby, but because we serve a Savior who's redeemed us a savior who gave his life on the cross. After coming from perfect, perfect heaven, he humbled himself to become a human being. And he lived a life among really, really hard people. And then he died, the perfect death. I encourage you to come and talk to us about that. Let me pray for us. Gracious Father, I uh, thank you for your church, and I thank you that you've called us to live together, um, that you've called us to defer our own preference as it relates to non-important issues, the things that we really feel like are important to us, but don't bring peace in the church. I pray that we would be humble, that we would be gentle, that we would be just finding ways to stumble over ourselves to seek peace in the church in the context of a true understanding of the work you've done on the cross. I pray for our church. I pray that these things would be real and practical, that you would convict me of the ways that I am causing division in the church. You would convict every person here of the things that they are doing to cause divisions in the church. And then with that conviction that we would turn to you with our sin and that we would go to our brothers and our sisters and we would be encouragement, that we would be gracious and patient with them. I ask these things in your name. Amen.